very glad to see everyone here tonight. I can't think of any other place I'd rather be, and I hope you feel the same. I've been tasked with Acts chapter 9. Uh, when Mark called me and asked me to put this lesson together, uh, as soon as I got off the phone, I read the chapter, and I thought it was going to be a little difficult. The chapter seemed very random to me. It seemed like there were three completely different subjects, and whether it was necessary or not, I felt that I really needed to get a unified theme, a thought, or a principle that would tie it all together. After some studying and some discussions with some of my friends, I think there's a pretty powerful lesson, pretty powerful message that we can get from this chapter. So I will do my best to lay it out for us. I'm going to start reading uh, verses 1 through 9. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. The estimates are it would have taken five to eight days for Saul and his company to walk to this city. Some have argued that Saul must have been riding a horse, since the road from Jerusalem to Damascus is 136 miles. He would have wanted to ride a horse to get to Damascus faster. But I think we have enough context clues that indicate that they were on foot. Four, verse 4 simply states that Saul fell to the ground, not that he fell off a horse, also, the men that were on the road with Saul stood, in verse 7, speechless, which means that they were on foot. And since a group can only travel as fast as its slowest member, having companions on foot counters the speculation that Saul rode a horse to get to Damascus faster. Also, had there been even one horse among them, it would have made much more sense to put Saul on the horse and lead it, rather than verse 8, which says, they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. So I think it's a safe statement to assume that they were walking on that trip, and it would have averaged about a week to make. I say this because it helps us show how important this was to Saul, how angry and passionate he was about his purpose, that he was willing to take a journey that was that long. Why Damascus? Saul had determined to go the farthest extreme in his mission to persecute the church. Over 136 miles north of Jerusalem, the journey to Damascus was kind of a big deal. According to Josephus, at one point in history, 10,000 Jews were massacred at Damascus. Hard evidence that at certain times a significant number of Jewish people lived in the city. Saul had to be certain that many Christian converts had fled to seek refuge in this city as well. Popular belief is that the authority of the chief priests would do him no good in Damascus, as it was actually out of his jurisdiction. Jerusalem and Damascus were both part of Rome at this point, but it would be much like a Plainview police officer going to Oklahoma City and trying to pull someone over. Yeah, they're, they're both officers of the law, and both places are the United States, but he still doesn't have any authority to do much of anything once he leaves Plainview. 
But there was still good reason why Damascus seemed like such a good hunting ground for Christians. See, Damascus was kind of like Switzerland. They had a history of remaining neutral in several issues. They weren't persecuting Christians, but they weren't specifically protecting them either. So even though Saul probably didn't have the authority to do what he planned to do, if he didn't cause too many problems and ruffle too many feathers with the people that were native to Damascus, he probably wouldn't have much opposition when he tried to arrest fleeing Christians. Verse 4 tells us that Paul fell to the ground and heard a voice. And verse 9 says he arose from the ground and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. Anytime I research a Bible subject, I always like to research the secular opinions as well. I believe it's important to have a general knowledge of the things you may encounter when studying with non-believers. It's amusing to me the amount of thought, time, and money that are go towards disproving anything Bible-related. As recently as 1987, Paul's conversion is explained by the Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and Psychiatry as, I quote, the bright light, loss of normal bodily posture, a message of strong religious content, and his subsequent blindness suggested an attack of temporal lobe epilepsy. And again, in 2012, a paper in the Journal of Neuropsychiatry and Clinical Neurosciences suggested that Paul's conversion experience might be understood as involving psychogenic events. This occurring in the overall context of Paul's other auditory and visual experiences that the authors propose may have been caused by a mood disorder associated with psychotic spectrum symptoms. So in short, the world wants us to believe that Paul, who wrote 50,000 words or 28% of the New Testament that we all hold near and dear, was in fact a psychotic guy with a mood disorder that had an attack of epilepsy. And we all believe his writings, so we must be worse than that. You know, I watched a TV show one time that explained away the ten plagues of Egypt and showed them to be naturally occurring things that had nothing to do with divine intervention. It's just like I said, it's amazing the amount of money and time invested in explaining the Bible away. We have one book, two inches thick at best, written by around 40 authors over 1,500 years that never contradicts itself. While the world of atheism has foot after foot of literature in just the last 100 years, and you can't get even two authors to agree 100% on anything, so many of these authors will quote each other's subjects they agree, quote each other on subjects they agree with, and then turn around and say they don't agree with something else in regards to another subject. So Christianity is the religion of faith? It's pretty obvious you need a whole lot more faith to believe these atheist arguments. Few Bible stories are as thrilling as Paul's road to Damascus conversion. Through the power of Christ, a man who had been the poster child of Christian persecution became a love-filled advocate for Christ by submitting himself completely to Jesus. The response of both Saul and all of us who are redeemed by Christ is the same. What do you want me to do? Like Saul, we do not bargain, negotiate, question, or come halfway. The response of the redeemed is obedience. A person's past does not matter to Christ. He is more interested in that person's future. How does this differ with sinners today? There aren't small sinners and great sinners, but just sinners. If we admit our sins and accept Jesus as our Lord in baptism, the discussion and process is short. It's only when we try to deny our sins or the lordship of Jesus that the discussion and arguing drags on. 
When God brings a person to faith in Jesus Christ, he already knows how he wants to use that person in service to his kingdom. Sometimes people are slow to understand God's plan and maybe even resist it. Paul's conversion showed that Jesus himself wanted the gospel to go to the Gentiles. As we will read in verse 15, squashing any argument from the early Christians that the gospel was only for the Jews, Paul possessed perfect qualifications to be an evangelist. He was versed in Jewish culture and language. His history in Tarsus made him familiar with the Greek language and culture. His training in Jewish theology helped him connect the Old Testament with the gospel, and as a skilled tent maker, he could support himself. Paul's life-changing experience on that road led to his baptism and instruction in the Christian faith. He became one of the most determined of the apostles, suffering brutal physical pain, persecution, and finally martyrdom. Let's pick up, verse, uh, pick up reading verses 10 through 19. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street that is called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard, heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Paul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Was it sinful or wrong in any way what Ananias did here? Questioning a direct instruction from Jesus? I'm going to read verse 13 again, as this is the first thought that Ananias had when he was talking to Jesus. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man, speaking of Saul, how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call upon thy name. We have several examples of God's people arguing with commands or instructions they were given. What if Moses just continued to stand his ground against God's instruction? arguing that he was slow of speech and insisting that God send someone else to deliver his people? What if Peter stood his ground against Jesus and refused to let him wash his feet? All three of these people, Ananias, Moses, and Peter, their first response was to question a direct instruction. So is that sinful? I'm going to take a liberty and say that it wasn't, because although they argued at first, all three of them ultimately obeyed and did what God instructed. So what's my point, you ask? Although none of us will hear the voice of God telling us directly to do something in this day and age, it's not necessary. There's nothing that God needs to tell us directly that isn't already covered in the Bible. So is it any less sinful when we read God's instructions and argue with it or choose to ignore it? What about the instruction of an elder? Look, if you don't like what an elder gets up here and preaches, 
or disagree with the decision the elders make or think that if it was your choice, you would do things different, then get out the Bible and disprove them. Please, for all of our sakes, prove them wrong. You owe it to them and you owe it to us. But if you can't, then do what they've asked you to do. Even if you're like Ananias and Moses or Peter and it's not your first instinct or you think it doesn't make sense or it clashes with your nature. Folks, we're living in some very challenging times. There's a lot of division and setbacks taking place. We have missed two gospel meetings so far. You think that's not the devil at work? You think he's content with that? How many of you have ever split wood? What do you do when you notice that crack that's starting to form? You swing that axe harder and faster, trying to separate that log. Satan is on a roll right now, especially in this country. There has never been a time that we need to be more unified, even in decisions that we may not agree with. Every decision the elders have to make in the difficult times is made with the weakest brother in mind. What decision can be made that fits as close as possible to the instructions and the guidelines given in the Bible that will help keep the weakest brother from falling away? Do you think Ananias was thrilled to get to meet Saul? Despite Jesus telling him again that Saul had a purpose in the kingdom? I have no doubt that Ananias was sick to his stomach at the thought of the task he'd been given. I would appeal for us all to be like Ananias. If an elder instructs us to do something or institutes a rule or a guideline in the assembly, challenge it. Get out the Bible and try to disprove it. Offer an excuse you think they haven't thought of, but ultimately submit to the elder's authority. The pattern is clear in day. If the elders are following scripture, then we are to follow the elders. I'm going to back up a little bit and start back in 18 and read through 31. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately... He preached, the, he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all that heard were amazed and said, Is this not the one who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem and has come here for the purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and he watched the gates day and, and they watched the gates day and night, to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him and let him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to him and declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. <clears throat> How many of us today stopped our Christian walk in verse 18 or 19? Let's read that again, starting in 18. But put your name in the verse instead of Paul's, as if this is a record of your conversion. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, 
And Mitch received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Mitch spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Now in verse 20, Mitch showed up every Sunday for the rest of his life and sat quietly on the church pew and kept it warm until he died. You think that's worth writing down? Verse 20 actually says immediately, he speaking, he speaking of Paul, preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. It is important to remember that our walk doesn't end at baptism. It begins. We need to be bold in Christianity, always willing to spread the gospel to those who will listen. That takes study and devotion. Look at verse 22. It says he confounded the Jews who dwelt at Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. The definition of confounded in the Strongs is to perplex, stir up, or bewilder, to stir up in an uproar. That's pretty bold, isn't it? I think we mostly fall short of that. I know myself can be worried a lot about offending someone. I certainly don't want to stir someone up in an uproar. But I want to focus more on the fact that he was able to confound them and prove that Jesus is the Christ. That implies that he had an extensive knowledge of the Old Testament and the coming and goings of Jesus. If I seek out David, Van, and Lyle, and I'm planning to confound them and prove them in farming practices, then I better be nothing short of an expert on the subject. If I open my mouth with nothing but my opinions, ideas, or suggestions, they will listen patiently for about five minutes and then tear me apart with the facts. The same thing is true of any subject, specifically the gospel. We are instructed to spread the gospel, and just like 1 Peter 3 and 15, we are expected to always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you of a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We have to be in the scriptures every day like the Bereans in Acts 17 and verse 11. They searched the scriptures daily. We are not going to confound or prove anything to anyone if we are not studying this Bible daily. Now I'm going to pick up in verse 32 through 42. <clears throat> now it came to pass as Peter went through all parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt at Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you, arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all that dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to, an, to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics, tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a Tanner.
I want to take a moment to discuss these towns a little. Lida was the capital of the Judean districts that included non-Jews and later hosted many prominent rabbis and a rabbinic school as well. That may have been why Peter was here. He may have intended to preach to these rabbis. Lida lies about nine miles east of Joppa on the road from the seaport to Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, it's called Lod. It was burned by the Romans and afterwards rebuilt and was known by the name Dospolis. Its modern name is Lud. Joppa was a very profitable port city. It was under Jewish control for about 40 years until it came under direct Roman authority in A.D. 6. Joppa is one of the most ancient seaports in the world. Its harbor is shoal and unprotected from the winds, but still, because of the convenience to Jerusalem, it became the main port of Judea. It was from this port that Jonah took a ship to flee from the presence of the Lord. I believe it's important to recognize that Lydda is near Joppa because corpses, talking about Tabitha, had to be buried right away. The distance of 10 miles meant maybe a four-hour's journey each way for the messengers to Peter and then from Peter to Joppa. Because it was customary to bury the corpse before sundown, even if Tabitha had died early in the day, they could not wait. In 32 through 42, there is a clear emphasis on the miraculous. Whereas Aeneas is healed of paralysis, Tabitha is raised from the dead. The story of Tabitha is presented in a more positive light than the story of Aeneas. While it appears that Aeneas may have not been a Christian, he is not specifically called a disciple as Tabitha was. Further, there is no real interest in Aeneas himself, only the fact of his healing. But on the other hand, the story of Tabitha relates in a specific way to what Tabitha did and why she was important to the community. There is an obvious interest in her as an individual, specifically mentioning the details of her funeral preparations. Finally, the story indicates that Peter recognized how important she was to the community, for he makes a point to present her to the disciples, which did not happen in Aeneas' case. Now, in my effort to not ignore any detail of this chapter, we read in the very last verse that Peter stayed with Simon the Tanner at Joppa. The only references to a tanner in Bible, to a tanner in the Bible are in Acts. So with a little secular research, I found out that the Jews looked upon tanning as an undesirable occupation, which makes sense because typically came with, it typically came with unpleasant odors and unattractive sights even though it was not considered ceremonially unclean. I figure that Simon the Tanner found a fellowship among the disciples of Jesus which had been denied to him before. Kind of a social class issue. We read in Acts 10, verse 32, that Simon's house was by the seashore, which is typical even today due to all the foul-smelling liquids that are used in the, and the salt water that may be used for washing skins during the tanning process. These tanneries are usually pretty plain and small, consisting of one or two small rooms in a courtyard. I think Peter staying with Simon the Tanner was part of a longer process of God teaching Peter some lessons about the way he viewed and treated people, which is much more evident in chapter 10 when Peter's taught to not call any man unclean. I've really enjoyed learning little pieces of information like that. I would not have cared or gotten anything out of half a verse that stated that Peter stayed with Simon the Tanner if I wasn't tasked with this chapter study, which leads me to the summary of the theme of this chapter that I had never noticed before. All three of these events, Paul's conversion, the healing of Aeneas, and Tabitha being raised from the dead, the purpose of all three of these events 
was the rapid spread of the gospel. After the account of Paul's conversion, the summary of the matter is 31. Then the churches had rest throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and were edified. Walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. After the account of Aeneas, the summary is verse 35. And all that dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. And after the account of Tabitha being raised from the dead, the summary of the matter is 42. And it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. When I read these verses or heard them read before, I just took it at face value. Yeah, okay, this is a record of Paul being converted and some stuff about some other people. Let's move on. But now that I was forced to evaluate the chapter in a much more in-depth manner, I get a lot more out of it. I get a sense of urgency from God's perspective. And it's obvious that God had a direct involvement in these three cases. These are not things that men can do on their own. So my question to you is this. Is the spread of the gospel, gospel any less urgent today than it was then? When was the last time we heard of a whole town or a community turning to the Lord? When was the last time we heard of a widespread fear of the Lord? When you think about it, our Christianity feels a little stagnant compared to the first century, kind of in a rut. I realize that we're not experiencing the miracles and divine intervention that was taking place then, but we have a ton of stories and amazing, amazing stories and admonition written in, these, in this Bible. It's like I said before, I was reading this chapter for face value. It almost didn't stir my faith at all. It made me realize that I'm taking for granted the miracles, the power, and the divine intervention that's illustrated in this chapter and throughout the whole Bible. Paul was a Christian killer, blinded for three days and healed and converted to the glory of Jesus. Aeneas was bedridden for eight years and healed instantly to the glory of Jesus. Tabitha was a woman who was loved by many, a woman with a good heart, and was well known for helping people. Verse 37 just says she got sick and died. Do you really think it was that simple and that quick? I've been around some people that got sick and died. It very rarely is quick and painless. The body wants to live, and it fights hard to live. It's horrible to watch, and I fear having to go through it. But imagine all that and then Tabitha being raised from the dead to the glory of Jesus. That had to have a tremendous impact on the people that saw that. These are some amazing things. We need to take time out of our day to study these stories and allow them to captivate us all over again. If we can remind ourselves that these are true stories that really happened and develop a genuine excitement for them, that can be very useful when studying the Bible with other people. It doesn't matter what a, religion, a person's religious background is. If you both can establish a belief that the Bible is 100% true and accurate and a standalone authority, that's when a genuine excitement for the scriptures can really be helpful. When reading the Bible is a chore that has to be done out of necessity, it's hard to convince others to do the same. That is what I have prepared for tonight. If there's anyone that here that has been taught the plan of salvation and would like to be baptized, or if there's anyone that needs the prayer of the church, please come forward and sit on the front pew as we sing the song of invitation.